We are in our second week of a new series that we started. So we started last Sunday, a brand new series called Bodybuilding. Uh, we have a graphic for that, um, not, the, not the jokey one that I, that I showed you last week, but we've got a, a, a graphic for bodybuilding about being in, in a fitness center or in a gymnasium, the idea that if we want to build up our body, we're going to have to make some effort. We're going to have to do some work. And if we're going to build up the body of Christ and make it a strong church full of strong individual Christ followers, each of us has to do our work as well our spiritual work, to be in the disciplines of prayer and the ministry of the word and being connected here every Sunday in the corporate worship, uh, to be connected in a life group during the week with uh, a smaller group of God's people where you do life together and you pray for each other and you study God's word, uh, serving on a ministry team somewhere where you're contributing to the growth of the body as each one of you does his or her work. So, we talked about uh, bodybuilding, and then last week, we had our key verse, and the key verse in 1 Corinthians uh, is verse 10. I think it, there's a graphic for the, hey, we got a graphic up there. So there it is, key verse to 1 Corinthians, where I think it unlocks the entire letter for us in verse 10. So Paul doesn't wait until later on in the letter. He starts out the letter by saying, here's the real reason I'm writing to you. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there may be no divisions among you. So what does that mean to have no divisions among you? It says that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. That always reminds me of a, a joke. Uh, it was told by a Jewish person, so uh, it's not as offensive if, if you know who it came from. But this Jewish man was talking to me, and he says, you know, wherever you have two Jews, you have three opinions. So, uh, and in talking, uh, you could say the same thing about certain churches, where uh, the last thing you could say about certain churches is that they are united. They are pulling oars together in the same direction toward God's purposes for the church, uh, we want to be united because there is a great power in unity. There is a great uh, power where God's spirit moves in an even greater way when God's people are, uh, th there are no divisions. We're all working together. We're all united in our mind and thought and purposes. We're agreeing with each other. These are the purposes that God has made us to do here in this church. And so uh, we focused on the power of unity last week. Today, I want to talk about the foolishness of God, because the so-called foolishness of God is so much wiser than anything mankind can come up with. Any kind of human wisdom, man's wisdom, God's way is so much better and higher than our way, and I hope you would agree with that. So before we get into the message, let me go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so dependent on you. Lord, without you and your revelation, we would be lost. We would be trying to come up with our own uh, understanding of who you are and what you're like. And we would not see your love and your holiness and your justice. But thank you for the revelation that we have through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the revelation that we have through the writings of the apostles and the prophets and that we can read them and we can learn about you and learn about what you want for our lives through the written revelation of your word. So, Lord, I pray that your word will speak to us, that your Holy Spirit will activate your word in our hearts 
And Lord, let us just tune in. Let us focus this morning so that we can listen, we can learn, we can uh, be doers of the word. We can be put right into practice immediately that which you're calling us to do. So Lord, help our hearts to be open to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, I've read about some people who have made predictions. You know, it's speaking of man's so-called wisdom and how smart uh, some men and women think they are. Uh, I've read some lists of people. They made s- predictions about certain products or people, and these predictions turned out to be completely wrong. For example, in 1962, here was the quote, we don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. That was spoken by the Decca Recording Company about a band called the Beatles. 1962. 1943. 1943, Thomas Watson, the chairman of IBM, IBM of all, of all companies, and he was the chairman. 1943, he says, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. I think I have five in my house. <laughs> okay, 1903, here's another uh, a bank president. Uh, 1903, he says, the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a novelty. It's just a fad. It was the president of a banking company in Detroit uh, contemplating whether or not they should give Henry Ford a loan uh, for the, to invest in the Ford Motor Company. And then finally, 1946, uh, Daryl Zanuck, who was a movie producer, he said, television won't last. <laughs> television won't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. <laughs> yeah, I wish that were true. So wrong. So many human ideas uh, and predictions that turned out to be wrong. Now, you and I can be wrong on a number of things that in the end don't really matter a whole lot, like predicting the weather. I mean, the weather, the weather person is, has the safest job in the world. They can be wrong at least half the time and still keep their job, right? Predicting the weather or saying one team is going to beat another team. I, I did admire the chutzpah of Draymond Green as he predicted that the game seven would be taking place in Houston. And as the game started about maybe halfway through the first quarter and the second quarter, I said, Draymond, <laughs> your prediction isn't looking too good. But boy, did the, did the Golden State Warriors come through. So saying one team is going to beat another team in a game or, or what the next fashion trend is going to be. I mean, is it going to be stripes? Is it going to be solids? Is it going to be polka dots? I don't even know if that's the terminology, but um, that uh, predicting the next fashion trend, does it matter really if you're right or wrong or the next horse race or even who the next nominee is going to be in the next election? I mean, how much difference does it actually make? Now, All these ways you can be wrong. There are some things in life that you have to get right. Like answering this question. You have to get this question right. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ who is called the Messiah? Some call him Savior. Who is he? Because if you get that question wrong, your eternal destiny is in the balance. So the Apostle Paul, in this 1 Corinthians letter, he's writing to these first century Christ followers in Greece, in the biggest city in Greece, in Corinth, and Paul is trying to communicate the main idea of the Christian faith. He's saying that the main idea of the faith is wrapped up in one single event that happened on one day in history in the land of Israel. 
Now, it's a, it's a little bit easier to be a, a church member in Corinth in the first century because you can say, okay, okay, Paul, so you're saying that the whole world changed because of this event that happened to one man on a hill outside of Jerusalem in Palestine. How many years ago was it? It was about 30 years ago, 25 years ago. Oh, okay. And that one event changed uh, everything. It changed the course of history. And Paul's saying, yes, it did. Because that one event launched a rescue operation for mankind. God sent Jesus to be the rescuer. And God played out the rescue operation in a way that is so countercultural to the way any first century Jew or Greek or Gentile would have predicted it. What we're going to see today at the last part of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and by the way, I said to you guys, you could be reading along. You could be reading ahead. You could even be knowing what I'm going to talk about. Remember, I said I'd fall off my chair in the office during the week if any of you actually emailed me and said, hey, Jim, I'm, I'm reading ahead, and this is what I'm discovering, and I have a question for you or something. I have to give props to Sue Beckstead over there because Sue actually wrote me an email, and she's going to ask me if I actually fell off my chair or not. But I, I did laugh and smile. I did an LOL. It was awesome. So thank you, Sue, for writing to me and uh, making that dream come true in this pastor's life. So God played out this rescue operation through Jesus. It was such a countercultural way to any of the way the Jews or Greeks would have predicted it. We're going to see the contrast today between God's wisdom and the human wisdom of this world. The true gospel is the message that is centered on one event in history, what we call the cross. Look what it says in verse 18. It says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. In the NIV, it says, to those who are perishing. To those headed to destruction, the message of the cross is foolish. But we who are being saved, we know that it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligence. Paul's claim here is that there are basically only two kinds of people in this world, in all the human race. Those who are in the process of perishing and those who are in the process of being saved. And you know, there's only one way to tell them apart. It's not by race, it's not by gender, it's not by economic status. The only way to tell these two categories of people apart is simple. It's by the way in which they respond to the gospel message. Paul writes from Isaiah, or Paul quotes from this Old Testament prophet, Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14, in which he says, because of this, God is doing the talking here, because of this, I will do wonders among these hypocrites. I will show that human wisdom is foolish and even the most brilliant people lack understanding. See, Paul, apparently Paul quoting from God's prophet, and the prophet is one who speaks for God. Paul is saying that God doesn't seem to care too much about human wisdom that is human wisdom apart from revelation from God. It is, he is predicting the ultimate demise. Paul is saying that all these wisdom of the sages, all the legal experts, the so-called gurus and shamans and self-help experts in this world, it's all going to come to nothing. They will all one day come to nothing. Because why? Ultimately... 
Their ideas are empty without Jesus Christ, without his power to transform lives and hearts. Human wisdom alone cannot lead you into a right relationship with our holy God. So Paul continues, and he goes on, and he says, So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. So people in their fallen worldly wisdom, they were rejecting the God of the Bible. And so God, in the midst of humanity's rebellion, where they rejected his son Jesus, they even put him to death on a cross, God decided in his plan he was going to outsmart everybody. He was going to develop a subversive plan to affect our salvation. And that plan would look foolish to most people. I mean, how can a man who died a terrible death in Palestine years ago, condemned as a criminal, how can the death of that one man result in salvation for all mankind? At first glance, the cross of Jesus looks more like a defeat than a victory. I mean, Jesus was executed and left for dead, but God orchestrated it so the whole plan ended up being now called by Paul. Now this message of the cross is called the wisdom of God. The prophet Isaiah talks about God and his ways and how God's ways are different than our ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. Look what he says in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying his way is, is higher, it is superior. From a human perspective, the message of the cross doesn't look like the wisdom of God. In fact, Paul's now going to quote from the human perspective. When we go to verse 22, he says, it is foolish. I now I asked the question in the header of this slide. I said, who's the foolish one here? Right? The Jews. To them, it is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks or to the Gentiles who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense, right? Now you can imagine Paul going into Corinth, walking into the synagogue there on the first uh, Sabbath day on a Saturday, and he starts talking about Jesus being the Messiah, being the Savior, and then he talks about the cross and how Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And you can imagine the Jewish audience listening to him. You're saying that Messiah has come. Yes, I am. You're saying that this Messiah's name is Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, I am. And what happened to him? He was ultimately put to death on a cross. And most of the Jews probably threw their hands up at that moment and said, then, I, then I'm automatically out. I'm out because how could I believe in a Messiah that died a terrible execution, criminal's death on a cross? Why would I want to believe and follow a person like that? So what is Christ crucified to the Jews? Why is this idea so offensive to Jewish people? Paul says the cross was a, quote, stumbling block to the Jews. 
Let me try and explain. Early in the first, even in the first century, the Jews were looking forward to the arrival of their Messiah. They were praying for the coming of God's Messiah, his anointed one, his deliverer. For a hundred years, the Jewish people had been uh, occupied by Roman armies and their nation of Israel or Palestine had been subject to the Roman Empire. Most Jews longed for Messiah to come. They had an expectation that he would be a political, military, triumphant Messiah. They believed that their Messiah or deliverer, that he would come and he would rule the world forever. They believed that Messiah would never die. They certainly were not expecting a Messiah that would be condemned by the Jewish high council and handed over to the Roman governor with a recommendation to execute him rejected by his own by the leaders of his own people. Many Jews in the Roman world would have listened to Paul's preaching until that part when he said Jesus was crucified and died and that's all they heard after that. The Jews viewed Jesus crucifixion as proof, by the way, there is a passage in the Old Testament that says anybody who's hang, who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. And so the Jews would have seen Jesus as hanging on a cross or a tree as being part of someone who is cursed. Look what it says in Deuteronomy. If someone has committed a crime worthy of death and is executed and then hanged on a tree, the body must never remain on the tree overnight. That, By the way, that's why the Jewish leaders went to Pontius Pilate and said, hey, can you break the legs of these criminals because we can't have them still alive at nighttime. We have to have them dead and then we have to take them down from the cross because this is our Jewish law. Isn't it interesting that of all the laws the Jewish leaders broke during the trial and, and, and the, the sham of how they treated Jesus with no justice at all and no fairness at all, how they would come back to the law now and say, Pontius Pilate, governor, we need to keep the Jewish law here. We need to get these dead men down off the cross before nightfall, right? So they said that, but they said, uh, the body must never remain on a tree overnight. You must bury the body that same day. For anyone hanging on a tree is cursed of God. Wow. Anyone hanging on a tree is cursed of God. That's how the Old Testament, that's how the law looked at it. So you could imagine a Jewish person with that background hearing about Jesus dying on a cross and saying, how can that be God's Messiah? They didn't see, here's what they didn't see. They didn't see that Jesus was coming as the suffering servant. They didn't see that he, was, he wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying for the sins of all the people. That Jesus was taking the punishment for them. Even as their own prophet Isaiah predicted in Isaiah chapter 53, he said the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. They conveniently forgot that part of the scripture. Jesus didn't fit into the Jewish dreams of political independence and deliverance, but honestly, think about it. And here's, here's a thought that I just had. What good would it have ultimately done the Jewish people if they got their political freedom from Rome through a Messiah like the, of their choosing, the kind that they wanted? What good would it have done them? They got their independence from Rome, yes, but even after that military victory, it would still have left them spiritually dead in their sins and separated from God. It would have been a short-term win, perhaps, but certainly not in the long run. How much more important it was for Jesus to give his life on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for all of our sins so that no matter what government was here, we know that we are justified by faith in Christ. We have an eternal place in God's kingdom based upon that faith 
because of the, quote, apparent failure in the Jewish mindset of their Messiah. Yes, dying on a cross rejected by both Jews and Gentiles was awful. But what if, and here's where the ultimate comeback happened in world history, what we celebrated Easter. What if that man who died on the cross didn't stay dead? What if he came out of the tomb alive on the third day? Now that would be a Messiah that wouldn't be defeated. It would be a Messiah that would be triumphant. And so the cross is really only a stumbling block to the Jews if they don't see or if they don't understand that Jesus was actually accomplishing atonement for all of our sins. You know, we actually learn quite a bit about God. When you think about the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about God that perhaps we didn't know before about God? Well, one of the things we learn, number one, is God is a sacrificing God. Do you realize that God sacrifices something important to Him? He gives up something on our behalf. In order to have a relationship with us, God sacrificed in order for that relationship to happen. It says in Romans, God, who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So God is sacrificing. Number two, God loves us. I referenced John 3.16, and I gotta move on. God loves us. Number three, God desires to forgive us. The idea that God wants to forgive us. He wants to forgive us of our sins more than he wants to judge us and execute his justice against sin where he says the wages of sin is death. God doesn't want to do that. It says God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So God is wanting to save us. He desires to forgive us. But the fourth thing that we have to keep in mind is that God hates sin, and God says that sin must be punished. Sin pays a wage, and the wages of sin is death. And thank God that because he loves us, because he's willing to sacrifice for us, he gave Jesus for us on our behalf. Instead of saying, everybody's on their own, you've got to pay for your own sins. You've got to be punished by God for the bad things that we've done. So that is why the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, how about to the Gentiles? What does Christ crucified mean to the Gentile Greeks, right? Paul says that the Greeks are always looking for wisdom. They're looking to get smarter. They're looking to figure out life, especially the Greek philosophers, the ones that were the disputers, the ones who like to get out in public and debate and talk about all kinds of human ideas. What does that mean? Why, did it, why was it nonsense? You guys remember last week, I said, the, I said the Greeks are always looking for wisdom. Where is wisdom to be found? Right? In, in the book of wisdom in the Old Testament, we have the book of Proverbs. The key verse of Proverbs is nine and chapter 9 and verse 10 where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Greeks are looking for wisdom, but they're not starting with the fear of the Lord. They're starting with man. Hey, we, I'm the center of the universe. And if God is out there, then I'm the one that he has to relate to or I've got to figure out how to relate to God. They don't have the concept of revelation from God to us. They, they, they think we've got to figure it all out on your own and become smart all by yourself apart from God. You know, a lot of man's so-called wisdom, by the way, a lot of human wisdom didn't actually end up so wise over the years in human history. At one time in human history, intellectuals thought that the earth was flat or they thought it was square. 
And God's word talks about the earth being a circle. At one time, scholars used to say that the earth is sitting on various kinds of foundations, maybe on the backs of turtles, maybe on the backs of, maybe on the backs of elephants, maybe on pillars. The earth has to be sitting on something, right? Or it's just going to fall into the rest of the universe. And yet God's word says that the earth is sitting on nothing. Why? Because of the concept of gravity and no gravity. It's amazing that they learned later that God's word knew it all along. Philosophers used to count the stars in the sky and they used to argue over their exact number. I remember reading in Genesis when, uh, when uh, it was a commentary when God told Abraham, hey, go out into the night sky. See if you can count the stars. If you can count all the stars that are up there, I'm going to give you even more descendants than the number of stars that you can count. In the Near East on a clear night, they said you could, you could count as many as 8,000 stars. On a clear night in L.A., you can count about four. <laughs> and probably two of those are airplanes. So, so it, it, it doesn't work to go in, into the big city and try to count the stars at night. I, I've always thought about, like, uh, you don't know the urban context I live in. So I, I remember reading that, and it says, count the stars at night if you can count them. And now we've learned through the Hubble telescope and other means that there's even 100 billion stars in our own galaxy a hundred billion stars in our own galaxy. Boy, were uh, they wrong as far as the number of stars. Doctors used to say that the fever, that when some, a human being got a fever, the fever was caused by the blood. The blood was getting too hot. So the best way to get rid of the fever was to drain the blood. Wow, <laughs> they were so wrong. And how much it weakened uh, a human body to lose a certain amount of blood. When God's word all along says the life is in the blood, the life of the body is in the blood. So humans can, human wisdom on its own without God can be wrong a lot of the time. So Greeks are looking for wisdom. Jesus is both wisdom and knowledge and the power of God. How does he accomplish that? Verse 22, how does Jesus fulfill what both the Greeks and Jews are looking for? It says Jews are demanding miraculous signs. Hmm, let's view on that day. Jesus is crucified and put to death. He came alive again. He was resurrected on that first Sunday. That's a pretty powerful sign. We call that Easter Sunday, the miracle of the resurrection of Christ. There's a tremendous sign right there. And then 50 days later, if the Jews are looking for another sign, 50 years after that first Resurrection Sunday, the apostles and the early followers of Jesus, 120 of them, they're gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden a mighty rushing wind comes down, tongues of fire comes down individually on each of the believers, and they start speaking miraculously in languages that they'd never studied or learned before. There was a miraculous sign. In fact, Peter got up and he said, I want to explain this miracle to you. I want to explain what happened. This was a fulfillment of the prophet Joel's prediction, Peter said. He said, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days and they will prophesy. And in foreign languages that were native languages of all the pilgrims, uh, the Jewish pilgrims who had come into Jerusalem, they were hearing the praises of God in their own mother tongues. And that was a great miracle. So if you want to, you know, you want to ask, well, Jews are looking for miraculous signs. I can point to two, Easter Sunday and the day of Pentecost. 
Verse 24, let's continue on. It says, but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's talk about those two terms. Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. First of all, he's the power of God. Jesus has the power. He has the power to change the hardest of human hearts. He has the power to fulfill what Ezekiel predicted was the hearts of stones were going to become hearts of flesh. Only God could do that. Only God could, could turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Jesus has the power to do that. Also, Christ is the wisdom of God. We come to understand that we will not become wise unless we put away our pride, unless we put away our self-sufficiency and our boasting, until we humble ourselves and we begin to fear the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The first love of man, <laughs> I wish I could say different, but I, I'll just speak for myself. The first love of man is the love of self. And when that love of self shifts over to the love of Christ, then that love becomes big enough to love other people around him or her without any competition, without any jealousy, without any division. And when God is working in us, and he's filling us with his spirit to love others as we love ourselves, that's when God is going to take the unexpected and do the extraordinary. Look what it says in verse 25. The foolish plan of God, this quote, foolish plan of God about saving us through the cross of Christ and the resurrection to follow, this plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. I want to ask you this question just to stop and ponder this. What has the message of the cross meant in your life? What is the message of the cross? What does that mean to you? How has that changed your life? You know, I remember that one of the first thoughts I had when I started to understand the cross is I said, wow, if God loves me that much to sacrifice for me to enter into a relationship with him, he must really desire that relationship, right? One of my favorite verses is Jesus says this on when he was praying in John 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Eternal life, Jesus said, is a relationship that they may know you and God wants to know us through a saving relationship with his son, Jesus. What has the cross meant in your life? I hope you can get a glimpse of the depth of the great love God has for you, how much he has humbled himself, how God spared no expense to bring us an offer of forgiveness, to bring us a declaration of righteousness, to bring us the promise of eternal life in his son, Jesus. Looking at ourselves, Paul says, hey, uh, Corinthians, Think about yourselves. Think about when I first came to you and preached this message and who you were and what was your status in society there in that great city of Corinth. In verse 26, he says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes. Few of you were powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose those Things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Wow, God is really subversive when he's doing the ministry of the cross. 
He is doing an amazing thing. One of the things God does to our pride and our self-sufficiency and our my way, you know, I'm always fearful, a little bit apprehensive when I hear, when I go to a funeral and when one of the closing songs is Frank Sinatra's My Way, when somebody said, I did it my way. When I hear that in a funeral, I said, ooh, I hope you're going to be okay with God because if you're going to do life your way instead of God's way, if you're going to be uh, dependent on yourself, if you're going to be proud of what you've accomplished in your life, you're going to get nowhere in a saving relationship with God. God uh, is being subversive here and he looks foolish, but he's actually wiser than myself. Paul is saying any grounds for self-sufficiency just get thrown out the window. Like the little kid that says, I do it myself. You know, what is that little kid saying when that little kid, I got kids and grandkids, they've all kind of said it in one way or another. Here, let me help with you that. No, I do it myself. You know, what is that? There's just this idea, even from, uh, from a little child, they want to be independent. They want to be self-sufficient. And a lot of us grow up and we want to throw off the shackles of authority we, want to, we don't want anyone else to control our lives. It's my life and I'll do what I want. You know, what, whatever the song is, it, it just embodies that kind of rebellious, independent spirit. And we come back finally to believing in Jesus as a Christ follower. And we have to humble ourselves. We have to get rid of the self-sufficiency and we have to be willing to come to Christ on his terms. There cannot be any boasting about we, about what we have accomplished or any boasting about what we have done. All the boasting has to go back to Jesus. Look what it says in verse 30. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him, made, talking about Jesus, God made him to be wisdom itself. God made us, excuse me, Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from sin. And therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. There's no boasting about what you or I have done to get right with God. There's only boasting about how great Jesus is. Why is that? Well, first of all, Jesus is the one who makes us right with God. Jesus is the one who, by faith in him, we are declared righteous. Jesus is the one who's freed us from the penalty of sin. And Jesus is the one who gives us a living relationship with Almighty God. So where does the boasting go? Does it boast to, wow, I'm really proud of what I've done. I'm a proud of my own religious performance. I'm proud of my track record in the kingdom of God. I, I, I am going to go to God and say, look what a good boy am I. Do I make it into heaven on our own? And God's going to say, what have you done with my son Jesus? Because yeah, the message of the cross might look foolish to humans who are trying to do everything on their own, who are trying to be independent, who's trying to, uh, to perform in some way and then say, God, would you please accept my religious performance? And God says, no, I'm not going to accept any of that. But I will accept you if you humble yourself and receive what my son Jesus has done on your behalf. Because God has loved us and sacrificed for us to come into that living relationship. Let's you know what our boasting should be? And I, I'll just close with this. So here's what all the boasting should be. Wow, what an amazing, wonderful Savior we have. All glory and honor to Jesus. 
Let's be the biggest boasters in human history about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul isn't against intellectualism. Paul is against godless intellectualism, the kind that makes man the center of the universe, the kind that's trying to get along without a living relationship with our creator and our redeemer, the kind of attitude that says it's all about you, when the Christian faith is an attitude that says it's really all about Jesus. This passage today should drive every one of us to the level of the ground of the foot of the cross. If we really understood that Jesus experienced that pain and agony that we deserved, then how can we possibly exalt ourselves? How could we possibly exalt any other human leader? Family in Christ. If anyone in the church is going to boast, then we should boast only about what a great Savior we have. Do you agree? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear Lord Jesus, we believe because of this revelation of your word, because of what you did on the cross, because of the resurrection, because of your, your coming back from the dead, your ascension into heaven, you're sending us the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts even now to grasp and to understand how great and wide and long and high and deep your love is for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that um, we would respond in the way you want us to respond. You've done everything to bring us to a point of having the possibility of a right relationship with the Holy God. You are both the power of God since you defeated sin and death, and Lord, you are the wisdom from God because in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so, Lord, help us to remember if we're going to boast about anything in this life, let's be boasting about you. And as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, if there's somebody here today in this room or listening online and you came in here, you weren't even really sure who Jesus is. You, you had no idea. You didn't realize that he's actually the divine son of God become a human being so that he could effect the means of our coming into a right relationship with God through his own death on the cross. And now you come to an understanding of that. Now you realize that Jesus is so much more than just a man or a philosopher or a rabbi or just a good teacher, that he is the son of God that can save you. Maybe today is the day that you're ready to bow your knee to him and to commit your life to follow him. And if today is that day for you, I just pray that you would pray along this prayer with me. Prayer is just having a conversation with God. P please pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that you gave your life to save me from my sin. I ask you today to be my Savior and to be the Lord of my life. Today, Lord, I choose to trust in you and I choose to follow you from this day on. God, show me how to take next steps. Show me what it means to grow in my relationship with you. Show me what it means to be a Christ follower wholeheartedly. I love you, Lord Jesus. I know that you already love me. And I just want to return the love. I love you because you love me first. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for bringing me into your family. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.